Over 200,000 of the homeless people in the United States of America are women and girls. The most needed and understocked item in homeless shelters, feminine hygiene products. Joy Road Media is proud to tell you about the Clean Love Project. The Clean Love Project's mission is to help women and young girls feel clean, loved, and empowered by distributing clean love kits to alleviate their hygiene needs. Go to thecleanloveproject.org to find out how you can help. The Clean Love Project focuses on the Metro Detroit area, but it also distributes kits worldwide. If you are a female in need of a clean love kit, go to thecleanloveproject.org and request one today. Joy Road Media is a proud supporter of the Clean Love Project at thecleanloveproject.org. It's no secret how much we love our state. One of our most favorite pastimes is pointing to a place on the map and driving there to explore local shops, restaurants, and anything else we can find. The keys to a good road trip are snacks, a good playlist, and a clean car. Get your car ready for a Michigan road trip by calling Ride and Shine Mobile Car Detailing in Dearborn, Michigan. We know the owner personally, and there's not a harder worker than Darnell. He will come to your home or place of business for interior and exterior detailing, wax and polish, paint correction, ceramic coating, and window tinting, right in your driveway or parking lot while you work. You can find Ride and Shine Mobile Car Detailing on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, or you can call or text Darnell at 313-804-6441 to get your ride shining for spring. Welcome back to Great Lakes Confidential with your hosts, Angie and Marty. Hello. Hey, baby. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm um, I'm tired. It's Holy Week. Mm-hmm. And when you work in a flower shop during Holy Week, it's very busy. Mm-hmm. I have seen more Easter lilies, tulips, hyacinths than I ever have seen in my life, yeah, in ever. The, in the florist business, they call it Holy Smokes Week. Uh... But no, I'm not very good at that sound. No, that's all right. So anyways, yeah, I'm tired and it's a dreary day in Michigan. Yesterday was practically summer and now we're back to that weird Mm -hmm. spring situation. So it's dreary and it's raining and it's and I have so much stuff to do and all I want to do is sleep. Well, you know what they say. If you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. Oh, nice. All right. So listen, I thought it would be fun to add a little something new to the show. Okay. Little pizzazz, little excitement. All right. I don't know how exciting this is, but... You just said a little. (laughs) Just a tiny bit. So I thought it'd be really cool to discuss different counties because there's something like 80 counties in our state, right? Mm -hmm. 80 some odd counties. And I didn't want to do it individual shows because that's kind of a lot. And I didn't want to bounce around because then that seems unfair. So my idea was to have a short little segment during each show where we pull one or two counties and I read off of this MLive 
story that I found, letting everybody know how the county got its name. Mm-hmm. So the only thing is, is that we don't have a name for this segment. I have no idea what to call it. So if anybody has any good ideas, feel free to let us know. But today's going to be the first one, first couple of ones, whatever. Anyways, so we're just going to go straight in alphabetical order. So Alcona, is it Alcona or Alcona? A-L-C-O-N-A. I'd say Alcona. Alcona County? All right, that sounds right. Alcona County in the Northeast Lower Peninsula was originally named Neguigon after a Chippewa chief. In 1843, the county's name was changed to Alcona, which is a schoolcraft neologism that possibly meant, quote, an excellent plane. That means it's a word invented by schoolcraft? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, he invented a lot of words. Oh, what was he just like? Who was he? Schoolcraft. Uh, what's I don't remember if it's his, uh, what his first name was, but he was a uh, um, an Indian agent in uh, the UP. Um, married um, married a woman who was a uh, Ojibwa woman who is the first known um, uh, Native American female author poet in America. Oh wow! Who's yes, yeah, Schoolcraft's wife. Okay. I can't think of what her first name is, but her 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 native name translated means um, this. Was it Susan? Was that her name? I don't know. No, I, I, I don't know. But her native name translated was uh, is the sound the stars make as they rush across the sky. Oh, I like that. I know it's beautiful. That's really cool. Wow, I had no idea. But yeah, Schoolcraft was an important figure in Michigan history. That's why we have Schoolcraft County. Schoolcraft Road. We live off of Schoolcraft Road. That's right. Yeah, very cool. Okay, yeah, see, I'm learning stuff. Mm -hmm. But he invented a bunch of words, too, that were kind of like fake Native American words, so that's what that means. Interesting. Elger County, Mm -hmm. home to Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. Elger County was named for Russell Alexander Elger. He was a lumber baron who served as Michigan's governor from 1885 to 1887. He subsequently served as a U.S. senator and as the Secretary of War under President William McKinley. And then we'll do this last one because it's really short. Allegan County says, depending on who you ask, Allegan County's name could be a schoolcraft invention or else it's a truly indigenous word meaning Lake of the Algonquins. Mm -hmm. See, schoolcraft made a a whole bunch of fake words and that's probably where all the camps got their names. That's really cool. I had no idea. Also... All words were fake, right? Like, they're all made up from some... I mean, yeah, I guess at some point everything's made up. So that's that. That's that little segment. So if you have any ideas of a nice, clever, fun name and you want us to use it, send me an email. Or Jane Schoolcraft? Jeez, I can't think of these names right now. Why can't I think of these names? Anyway. I don't know. Because it's cloudy outside and it's cloudy in your brain and that's just the way life is. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Michigan. I know. So... Today, we're going to switch it up a bit, and I'm going to let you tell me a story. Yeah, I brought a story. So you're talking today about... We're going to be talking about Roaring Dan Seavey, the one and only pirate of the Great Lakes. Okay. I know we talk a lot about, uh, you know, it's kind of like a uh, marketing thing with the Great Lakes, like, come to the Great Lakes, shark-free since forever, and we pretend like we don't have the problems that they have on the open seas. Sure. Like sharks and major storms and piracy but the thing is is we do we have a lot of we have sturgeon they're pretty big they're they're, not sharks we have talked about some uh some water monsters Mm -hmm. in this state so we got things to look out for we've talked about shipwrecks yeah 
Lake Superior has Lake those Superior wild with storms. The storms. And actually, yeah, all the lakes have uh, ships that have been lost due to storms. Now we're going to talk about something that we didn't think we'd talk about before. That's piracy on the Great Lakes. Let's do it. We got a man. This uh, now I'm going to be uh, uh, referring heavily to this uh, report written by a gentleman named Richard Boyd, who is the director of the Wisconsin Underwater Archaeology Association, and he's also the author of uh, probably the premier book on um, Dan Seavey called "A Pirate Roams Lake Michigan: The Dan Seavey Story." Okay, cool. Now this is a uh, uh, a short article that he wrote uh, was originally published in uh, Michigan History, which is a magazine of the, the Historical Society of Michigan back in 2012. Okay. So if I jump in uh, reading word for word verbatim, it's only because I'm a big fan of Richard Boyd and his writing, and he's done a great job of succinctly telling the Roaring Dan Seavey story. So I'm going to jump right in with his first paragraph because it's beautifully written. I like it. Let's do it. In the maritime folklore of the Great Lakes... Only one mariner has ever been branded a pirate. That person was Captain Daniel Seavey, who spent most of his infamous career on Lake Michigan and in its many ports. So notorious were his exploits that he became known across the region as Roaring Dan, a nickname well-suited to his colorful personality and pugnacious disposition. Daniel Seavey was a large and powerfully built individual for a man of the late 19th century. He stood six foot four or five inches and weighed about 250 pounds. Whoa. That's one eighth of a ton. That's a big dude. Yeah. He possessed a barrel chest with long arms terminating in huge hands all set atop a trim lower body. His hair was sandy, his complexion ruddy, and he spoke with a pronounced New England accent. Are we sure this isn't Paul Bunyan? Well, that's the funny thing, too. You mentioned that because CV wasn't from Michigan by birth. He was from Maine which uh, he was born in Maine in 1965, which is kind of funny because I believe in the Paul Bunyan story, various variations have him coming from Maine originally, mm-hmm. which is funny because Maine is sort of, if, if it wasn't, it's sort of like the, the cousin of the Great Lakes states, except it's on the saltwater, you know, because it's got the same uh, kind yeah. of topography. I think it's all kind of connected to the Canadian shield, yeah. the tundra, the, the taiga, so as for they our, say. So but, Anyway, yes, thanks for getting me back on track. What's your question? No, I was just going to say for our listeners, we see, are they commercials? What, what, something keeps popping up on the television about like, like Eastern states like Maine and, you know, uh, whatever. New England. New England. Yeah, New England states. And, and we always kind of make jokes about how they're like Great Lakes. They're like Michigan wannabes. Yeah. So it's funny that you're bringing up Maine again. And- right. I'm, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to call Maine a wannabe, not on, the, on our podcast anyway. Well, like I, I will. Said, I think it's our, our saltwater cousin. <laughs> okay. Is how I will refer to them. All right. Maine is our saltwater cousin because they have lumberjacks and lighthouses too. Yeah. So, you know, they're very much like us, except, uh, you know, they're not connected to a lake. Anyway, so uh, so getting back to Dan Seavey, he was born out in uh, Maine in 1865. His father was a schooner captain, which is something that he picked up from his father, uh, becoming a seaman himself at the age of 13. At 18, he had entered the U.S. Navy for a three-year hitch, followed by a stint as a deputy marshal for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, for which he tracked bootleggers and smugglers on reservation land in several states. Roaring Dan first appeared in the Great Lakes uh, in the 1880s area near uh, Marinette, Wisconsin. Uh, He was trapping in the area, um, you know, like people did in the Great Lakes, Mm -hmm. trapping for fur and whatnot. Uh, While he was trapping, he met and married 14-year-old Mary Plumley, 
the first of his three wives, 14 years old, back when you can do that, I guess. Ugh. Yuck. By the 1890s, the couple and their two daughters had moved to Milwaukee, where C.V. bought a small farm and interest in several waterfront saloons. The Milwaukee business directory for 1896 confirms that C.V. and a partner owned a tavern near the city's harbor. Saloon ownership allowed C.V. to become acquainted with Frederick Pabst, the Milwaukee beer magnet. Oh. Pabst recorded, reportedly encouraged C.V. to invest in a mining company in Alaska. Roaring Dan then pulled the first of his many disappearing acts. Without notice, he sold his Milwaukee properties, deserted his family, and left town, reappearing in the midst of the Klondike gold rush. He spent several years pursuing a fortune there, but instead suffered a big financial loss when the company went bust. C.V. came back to Milwaukee, but he refused to resume his family responsibilities and soon vanished onto Lake Michigan. Mary C.V., meanwhile, returned to northern Wisconsin, remarried, and raised a large family. In 1900, Roaring Dan surfaced in Escanaba, Michigan, where he married 22-year-old Zilda Bisner, another disastrous union. Within four years, Bisner filed for divorce, her declaration describing how C.V. regularly beat her and threatened her life. Whoa. Yeah. When confronted with the divorce suit, C.V. once again disappeared onto the lake. Some years later, he met and wed Annie Bradley on the Garden Peninsula of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, a marriage that lasted many years. So we're basically seeing that this man is a bit of a roustabout, mm-hmm. a bit of a jerk, even. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to describe him. Sort of the type of person, uh, you know, and you see the way he constantly runs to his boat. You can see the pirate forming before your eyes. <laughs> yeah. CV operated various businesses in Michigan. Some were legitimate, some were not. Over the years, he dabbled in marine transporting, trapping, logging, lumber milling, and even some prize fighting. On the dark side, he also practiced smuggling, poaching, bootlegging, and pimping. Whoa. Yeah. These activities made Roaring Dan a readily recognizable character in most lake ports, where even today many a CV story can be recounted. So I'm assuming... The word pimping probably still has the same meaning, right? It means right? exactly what you think it means. Okay. It means human trafficking. Okay. I just want to make, you know, terms, the the, yeah. the the words, definitions of words change throughout time. So I just wanted to make sure that that was still a word that would have been used in that same way. But, I mean, I assume that this... Probably not the same way we grew up on, where we grew up, you know, with pimps being cool, colorful, funny characters. Uh, before okay. the... Uh, you know what I mean? Before <laughs> the, the the horror of yeah. human trafficking really started. So you're talking like Pootie Tang pimps. Yeah, Pootie Tang, not... talking Ice-T. Yeah, you yeah. You know, talking Snoop Dogg. Gotcha. Like the okay. rappers who've actually said that they've been pimps, and it's like, oh, we love these guys. Yeah. Even though it's like... Ooh, you've probably done some horrible things in your day that we just don't talk about. Right. We're going to talk about Dan Seavey, though. I just wanted to make sure that yeah. the definitions no, were still the same. No, you're correct. It's pimping. It's okay. basically, and it's, you know, in Dan Seavey's case, uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, consensual pimping either. Okay. A lot of kidnapping and forced prostitution. Jesus, this we'll, guy is terrible. He's a real jerk. We'll get to it. We'll get to it all. All right. Anyway, lots of tales about this man, where one such tale emanates from the small village of Nobinway in the eastern Upper Peninsula. While working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, C.V. tracked a liquor smuggler to this hamlet and cornered the outlaw in a local tavern. The smuggler boldly declared that no lawman ever could take him in hand-to-hand combat. Never shrinking from a fight, 
Marshal Seavey launched into the violator, and the two vigorously punched away for several hours. What? Roaring Dan finally finished the bout by tipping a piano on the battered villain, or so the story goes. The defeated man received prompt medical attention, but ultimately died of his injuries during the night. Upon leaving town the next day, CV telegraphed a succinct report. Outlaw expired while resisting arrest. Wow. So not only was he a pimp, a pirate, he was also a dirty cop. I, I don't... I'll, okay. Beat a man to death over the course of several hours. Jeez. I mean, this is the old-timey stuff where people could box for several hours. This, I mean, this. I'm just blown away that he was able to do all... Like, I just can't wrap my head around the fact that this guy... How was he a cop? I don't understand. It's silly. It's crazy, crazy times. I mean, this is this is the fun, uh, you know, lore of the lakes here. Where yeah, uh, I guess so. You know, who knows how much of this is a tall tale? How much of this is real? But Roaring Dan was a notorious barroom brawler. At Manistee, a resident tough had beaten all local fighters and put out the word that he was seeking new challengers. CV quickly rose to the bait and headed to town, where he confronted the ruffian in a saloon. A battle then ensued. CV flattened the Manistee upstart and hastily departed the scene before authorities could arrive to assess the significant property damage. The captain occasionally fought for money. His most famous prize fight occurred in Frankfurt during the winter of 1904. With considerable fanfare, CV battled Mitch Love, a respected pugilist from downstate. The fight was held on the ice of the frozen harbor, where a shoveled circle served as the makeshift ring. Reportedly witnessing the contest were about 200 people, many placing sizable bets on the outcome. The contestants went at it eagerly with bare knuckles for nearly two hours. This guy's the two-hour kid, 120-minute man. CV eventually made a bloody pulp of love, who was carted off for medical attention by his dejected supporters. Roaring Dan apparently cleaned up on the contest, not only collecting the main purse, but also a percentage on numerous side bets placed with his cohorts. Why is this guy not being arrested? He is the law. And this is the UP, oh you know, this is the UP over 100 years ago. It was no man's land. The wild, is... the wild north. I guess so. Oven carrying a handgun, CV was known to be a crack shot with a pistol, rifle, or shotgun. While living in Frankfurt, he set up an illegal fish trap offshore at the harbor's mouth. This was a natural attraction for other violators who wished, who wished to poach from the poacher. Roaring Dan solved this problem by running a trip line from the trap to a bell in his fishing shack on shore. Anytime the bell would ring, CV would fire a well-placed rifle shot into the water near the interloper, thereby discouraging future thievery. Confidence games were another of CV's many talents. During this era, a significant horse racing enterprise had developed in Chicago. Some horse owners were convinced that their thoroughbreds exhibited enhanced stamina when fed a type of marsh hay supposedly grown only in Delta County in the Upper Peninsula. To satisfy the demand, Roaring Dan supplied boatloads of hay to Chicago racetracks, profiting handsomely from the trade. It is thought that C.V. himself sold the horsemen on the merits of this exotic feed. Roaring Dan also made considerable cash by running a floating bordello. Brothels were known to flourish in port towns. Local lawmen tried to curtail these unsavory activities, but met with limited success because their authority ended at the water's edge. Using this loophole in the law, some schooner masters would load their vessels with prostitutes and liquor and travel from port to port, especially on weekends and paydays. The Wanderer, CV's 42-foot, two-masted schooner, was engaged in this activity, with Roaring Dan making the rounds of such communities as Fayette, Nama, Garden, and Escanaba. C.V. became forever famous when he was arrested for piracy. 
as chronicled in Lakeshore newspapers. These accounts relate how, on June 11, 1908, Roaring Dan and two henchmen stole a small schooner in Grand Haven, thereby initiating a nautical cat-and-mouse game with federal authorities. It is suggested that C.V. approached Captain R.J. McCormick, owner and master of the Nellie Johnson, and several crew members in a local saloon. After some socializing, C.V. enticed the group into a more serious drinking until they became immobilized. He then absconded with the schooner and headed to Chicago, intent on selling the ship's cargo of cedar posts. Jesus. Surprisingly, C.V. and his crew could not unload the posts on Chicago's thriving black market, so they headed back across the lake and up its eastern shore. By then, McCormick had hastened to alert government authorities of the theft. On June 20th, nine days later, the federal revenue cutter Tuscarora steamed out of the Windy City in pursuit of Roaring Dan, with Captain Preston Uberoth in command. Aboard were McCormick and the U.S. Deputy Marshal Tom Courier with an arrest warrant for C.V., The charge, it said, was piracy. The Tuscarora, a 178-foot steel-hulled gunboat that was reputedly the fastest ship on the Great Lakes, cruised up the eastern shore, stopping in every port and obscure backwater where C.V. might be hiding. This routine proved slow and fruitless, so, at Ludington, Captain Uberoth telephoned all the lighthouses and life-saving stations to the north and asked their crews to search for the pirate. Eventually, the lifesavers in Frankfurt reported that C.V. was there, having hitting the Nellie Johnson on a nearby river. The cutter headed north, pausing in Manistee in late afternoon. Uberoth decided to refuel there and proceed to Frankfurt under the cover of night, fearing that Roaring Dan might be warned of their approach by his many friends in the area. The gunboat arrived in Frankfurt about dawn and sailed onto the anchor north of the city, below Point Betsy. In mid-afternoon, The schooner Wanderer was spotted sprinting out of the harbor under full sail, headed across the lake. The Tuscarora weighed anchor and gave chase at full speed, reportedly burning the paint off of her smokestacks and boilers. C.V. was said to have paid no attention to signals to drop sails, which prompted the gunboat to end the chase with a well-placed cannon shot across the schooner's waterline. A team of armed lawmen then boarded the Wanderer and arrested Roaring Dan, who was placed in irons for the trip back to Chicago. On June 30th, just 19 days after the initial heist, C.V. was arranged, not for piracy, but for mutiny and sedition on the high seas. Despite the government's best efforts, however, a grand jury failed to indict Roaring Dan on the charges, and he was set free. The chase in the case against the alleged lake pirate received extensive newspaper coverage all across the country. How did Roaring Dan escape imprisonment? When clearly he had stolen the Nellie Johnson, no one really knows, but speculation abounds. Some say that Seavey's lawyer, an old hunting buddy, was well-connected in Chicago's legal community and that strings were pulled to ensure the captain's release. Others suggest that Roaring Dan had been a seaman on the schooner and was owed money by Captain McCormick. This theory has some credibility, given the mutiny charge, which suggested some formal relationship with the vessel. Still others have postulated that C.V. was acting in his capacity as a federal marshal in some arcane manner. Whatever truly happened, Roaring Dan was forever after branded a pirate. What is, what is mutiny exactly? Mutiny is when uh, everybody aboard a ship, everyone who, you know, like the underlings on a ship, mm-hmm. turn against the captain. That's what I thought. And take control of the ship. Okay. So they've, if they... Uh, you know, again, this is all kind of lost to history, what really happened, mm-hmm. but it's theorized that maybe uh, at some point Roaring Dan was considered crew on that ship, 
So what he did wasn't piracy, it was mutiny instead? I mean... Because I've heard different variations of the story. They all, you know, it all entails him meeting up with the uh, the crew of the Nellie Johnson and the captain of the Nellie Johnson, and he gets them just blackout drunk and takes the boat. Now, it's possible that in this meeting, while they were drinking, he was actually hired to be a ship hand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then was like, all right, well, you guys are still getting blackout drunk and I'm still taking your boat. Bye bye. So, I mean, in the court of law, is piracy worse than mutiny? Um, I don't know nautical law that well, but piracy, um, I think it's it stands out because in his story, he was never actually charged with piracy. Mm -hmm. But that's what all the media accounts and all the stories of the day said that he was a pirate. And so he was forever stuck. With the ter- with the name pirate, mm-hmm. well, I'm just I'm just thinking like you know when you when there's like a murder versus manslaughter, you know what I mean? It's like the victim is still dead, mm-hmm. but it's slightly different. You know, yeah, murder versus manslaughter is still slightly different in in the eyes of the law. So I was just curious if piracy and mutiny are sort of the same. Thing like murder and manslaughter, or if they're yeah, I think it's it's similar. Like it's it's two different reasons to take control of a ship. Okay, you know, like like piracy, you have no connection to that ship. You just steal you're, it. You're, you just you're take taking it. it just because you want the goods on the ship. Right. Where with mutiny, you know, God knows what could happen. You could be stuck at sea, you know, with an inept captain, mm-hmm. and everyone decide, you know, this is stupid. We're done working for this guy. Let's make him walk the plank. Right. So that's what they do. Right. Okay. So Roaring Dan was 43 years old when this arrest occurred. Throughout the rest of his life, he publicly decried the affair, proclaiming his innocence and decrying all accusations of piracy. In the 1940s, when interviewed by Henry Barkhausen, C.V. declined to recount the details, but referred to all officials involved as liars. Despite his public protests, however, there's evidence that Roaring Dan viewed things quite differently in in private. In 1923, C.V. and a business partner purchased a tract of land at Ghoulies Harbor on the Garden Peninsula to establish a sportsman club. The club never materialized, and today that property is a land conservancy. During a review of title transactions for acreage, a fascinating quitclaim deed was found. The document stated that Mary Silver, which was his first wife mm-hmm. with a new last name, waived all dower rights to the property being purchased by John Silver, also known as Dan Seavey. Hmm. Listeners will recall that Seavey's first wife changed her name to Mary Silver after they parted ways. However, this deed discloses that they were never legally divorced and they may have rekindled their relationship under the guise of John and Mary Silver. The alias of John Silver recalls the fictional pirate Long John Silver in Robert Louis Stevenson's classic book, Treasure Island. The choice of this name may suggest that in his private life, Roaring Dan wore his piracy label as a personal badge of honor. Hmm. Man was proud to be the one and only pirate of the lakes. Yeah. I mean, I suppose he'd be more proud of that than being a pimp on the lakes. I Yeah. I mean, it's all pretty terrible, but... Pimp on the lakes? That sounds like a, the name of Kid Rock's boat. <laughs> While still in Ghoulie Harbor, C.V. suffered a burn injury in a suspicious sawmill fire that claimed the lives of two men. Due to the injury's lingering effects, the captain retired from sailing in his 60s and took up residence at Martha Champ Weed's boarding house near the Escanaba waterfront. 
In the later part of the 1930s and into the 40s, he lived quietly with his daughter Josephine in several communities near the border between Michigan and Wisconsin. He died in a nursing home in Peshtigo, Wisconsin in 1949 and was buried at Forest, Hill, Forest Home Cemetery in nearby Marinette, where he first began his journey into wow. the Great Lakes. Everything comes full circle. The man first appeared in Marinette. The man last appeared in Marinette. It's weird to think that, like, when you, I mean, time is fake anyways, but it's weird to think that this man was born in the late 1800s and was a pirate, whether he wants to admit to that or not. Mm -hmm. He was a pirate and then died as recently as the 1940s. World War II was on. Yeah, it's just, it's a very strange concept to kind of wrap your head around. And... You know, as you were talking about different locations, it just dawned on me, you know, we're on land that so many different things happened that we will never know. And we're on land of people who 100, 2, 3, 4, 5, 600 years ago did really, really cool, amazing things. Not saying that Dan Seavey was doing amazing things. Like two-hour fistfights? But you know what I mean? Like Dan Seavey is doing amazing things. I mean, he was a bit of a scumbag, but let's be honest, he's got a good story. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean he was doing good things. He was stealing things. He was beating people up in bars. He mm-hmm. was, you know, it doesn't sound like he was a very good person. But it just made me, it made me think that there are really cool stories out there that we'll never know. Yeah. And, you know, like this this little corner lot that we live on to think about the things that could have happened here you know i do every night when i try to fall asleep 400 years ago it's just it's really it's really kind of cool when you think about it like that because i i think that so many of us just kind of walk through our day like this is it this is mm-hmm. you know this is my life it is you know this is it and when you really stop to think about what else there was yeah. And then also what else there will be. I don't know. It kind of makes me feel like I want to do more cool stuff because I want to, I don't know. I don't know. Nobody's ever going to know what all I did. But, you know, 400 years from now, I want somebody else to be sitting in their floating house and be like, oh, I yeah. wonder what sort of things happened here. You know, <laughs> I don't oh, know. Yeah. She pimped some people on the lakes. Yeah. No, no she didn't. I did not. Don't start that rumor. No. But, you know, it's just it's just really, I don't know. It's just one of those things that, one of those weird thoughts that pop into my brain. And it's like, it's really, it's weird to consider. And it, like, I'll never understand, you know. I'm with you. All and, of it. Right. I'm with you. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're getting slightly off topic because, uh, you know, we're not talking about this piracy anymore. But I do... I am very curious in like the pre-Columbian history of mm-hmm. America. Like I think back in high school, how American history was taught like over two years to us. Like we had, you know, from Columbus up until the revolution and then the revolution up until modern times or like Columbus yeah. up until the Civil War. Yeah, exactly. Civil War. You know, it's broken up like that. And it's like, I think it'd be better. Like it'd be amazing if we had like our first year was... Everything that happened before Columbus got mm-hmm. here, if they even know, you know, I mean, this this country, not so much in Michigan, but definitely in Ohio and, yeah. and Illinois, other which I mentioned because they're Great Lakes states. But, uh, you know, 
more of the southern Great Lakes states are just littered, especially the southern portions of those states are just littered with with uh, burial mounds mm-hmm. that you know we only have half an idea of what it was. Yeah, might, they might not have even been burial mounds for all we know. We don't know why these mounds were built, like the Great Snake Mound in Ohio, right near uh, Chillicothe, Chillicothe. I don't know how we pronounce it, or uh, Cahokia out near St. Louis, which mm-hmm. was the at one point in time. It was larger than London was at that point in time, as far as like it was a it was a metrop it was a Native American metropolis. Yeah, right there on the Mississippi River, with you know tens of thousands of residents living there and people coming from all over, you know, to trade there and mingle there and move there, and it collapsed. I collapsed before you know we even discovered it. Right. I would love to see you know there's Native American schools throughout michigan you know in different reservation locations Mm -hmm. but i would like to see some sort of integration with native american and indigenous teachers teaching non-indigenous people teaching us their history like Mm -hmm. that's the only way we're going to really learn their history because i mean we see you know and i'm not going to get crazy political or anything like that but we see these issues that some states are having with critical race theory and it's like okay you can have your opinion on that and that's okay but the fact of the matter is is that it's still history and it's still our history it's everybody's history and we you and i as you know white midwesterners we know what we know from being taught in school and then we know a little bit more than that because we're very you know to us education education is extremely important and we're very interested to know the history of everybody that was here we're definitely history buffs right but there's a lot of people that aren't and they're Mm -hmm. not learning the right history and they're not learning all of the history And and i don't think that they're learning the history even from the right people i have a big problem with being taught something you know there's always people always talk about um, I'm sure you've heard it before. Oh, I'm going to take weight loss advice from a fat doctor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing to me. I don't want to I don't want to learn black history from a white teacher. Mm-hmm. I want to learn black history from a black person. I want to learn indigenous history from an indigenous person. And I just feel like having some sort of integrated educational system would be so beneficial to so many people so that we really do have a good understanding of who was here before us and what they were doing and what we can learn from the things that they were doing and and how can we i just feel like it would make for a much better and happier place well if you want to see that run for school board I know. I don't have Go that kind of time. Go to school board meetings because that's where it all starts on the local level is at your school board because that's who decides what we learn in our elementary schools, high schools. Once you get to college, you can learn all this stuff. It's all it's all there. There's classes on it all, you know. Right. University is great for that. But uh, at the, you know, you don't learn a lot of stuff. You yeah. definitely don't learn. And I think that's, I don't know, why are we, I don't know if we should be going off on this, but that's why the, the uh, critical race theory conversation is important. Because it's not about, you know, teaching white people to feel guilty. Right. It's about teaching and learning about everybody's experience and how we're all related. We all are connected. And how, you know, one group's actions may affect another group's actions. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, that's literally just 
you know, if you take the history part out of it, like your actions on a daily basis affect another mm-hmm. person's actions. It doesn't have to be anything negative either. It's just right. whatever you do is going to have a domino effect to somebody else. Right. And it's the same thing with, with the history. It's the same exact in my brain, anyways, it's the it, it's the exact same right. thing. I mean, it's you know, getting back to to Native America, you know, it's just a, again, you, you get rid of ideas like critical race theory and and teaching accurately, you know, letting letting other people tell the stories in their voice, and you do have an entire generation of people who think that Native Americans live on reservations by choice, right? You know, like don't quite understand what the story is, and how uh, you were talking about. Uh, I think on our show, we do a good job of not um, getting too deep into Native American mm-hmm. stuff, which, you know, it's it's the lifeblood, the history of, of our state. And I love, you know, all the stories and the legends and all that, but I don't feel like it's our place to yeah. delve into that stuff. So we don't really talk about it out of respect for right. the culture. And And I should, this is something that I don't want anybody to think that, and we haven't really gotten a lot into black history we have touched on a couple of things Mm -hmm. that's also not our story to tell but i will say that for most of our listeners they probably have no idea i have three boys and two of my three boys are mixed Mm -hmm. they have black fathers and so where there's a part where it is not my history but it's their history and so I I don't ever want to be disrespectful by telling those stories, mm-hmm. but I also recognize that as a white mom to two black children, mixed children, it is my responsibility to make sure that we are all learning these stories together, that we are all embracing that history, whether right. it's my history or not. So so there are times when when you and I will discuss black history on the show and i i want to make sure that anybody listening is very clear and going and and understanding that i don't feel like sharing that story like it's not i'm not saying oh i'm not going to share indigenous stories because i'm not indigenous but i'm going to share black stories just because i think i know something Mm -hmm. like that's not the case at all i'm just saying that for my boys for my family that is a part of our history. That yeah. is a part of their history. And and so, you know, we want to be inclusive without stepping on toes and sharing stories that our that may not be our stories to share. But also, I realize I'm talking in circles and I apologize. But um, but I also want to make sure that people understand that we do want to share those stories. And right. they are very important. So I think we should, uh, what we should say is, you know, black history is history. Mm-hmm. Black history is American history. Native American history is history. Native American history is American history. We shouldn't be afraid to tell those stories. It's more or less, um, you know, with uh, with the Native American history, especially, you know, like Chippewa history here in Michigan and, uh, you know, stories and legends and all that. That's where I don't feel comfortable mm-hmm. getting into, you know, telling their, retelling stories, retelling right. legends gotcha. and all that stuff. Yeah. But as far as, you know, Native American history in Michigan, yeah, we're going to talk about it. Black yeah. history in Michigan, we're going to talk about it. Yeah. You know. And but all of- I'm not going to share any stories like I'm an expert on them. Gotcha. Any, any yes. legends or whatever. I'm going to mispronounce things. I am no time. expert. <laughs> and I apologize for for that. I am learning. I'm listening. Right. And 
to add to that, I know I've said this before, but if anybody listening is an indigenous person that wants to share your stories, if anybody is a black person and you want to share your stories, if you're Asian, if you're Chaldean, if you're whatever, I mean, literally whatever, if you want to share if you're Dutch, if you want to share your Michigan story, we would love to hear it. Because, I mean, that's the beauty of the state. It is really such a melting. Oh, my pot. God. I had no idea that there was a whole Finnish population in the oh, Upper yeah. Peninsula. Like, what is it's even the going Finnish on? Finnish population outside of Finland. It's and it's crazy. still very small. And and we also have the largest, and I know I'm going to, is it Middle Eastern population in Dearborn? Or is it? Well, I think we're, we're, we're up there with LA, but uh, I think per capita the largest in Dearborn, yeah. Yeah. Middle Eastern. Safe to say Middle Eastern because, yeah, there's a lot of Christians, a lot of Muslims. Okay. People from every yeah. Middle Eastern country. It's just crazy to to look around the state and see the different mm-hmm. shapes and sizes and colors and you know what I mean. Like I just so if if you if you're out there and you have a, a story to share, please reach out because I would I would love to hear it. I would love to be you know a, a vessel for you to share your story and and your history and yeah. That would really, that would be so exciting. I just, yeah. I love stories. I know. I, I think we can talk so about much. history, though. I agree. When when we say it that way, when it's when it's more speaking on the history of things that have happened as opposed to sharing the folklore stories that, you know, we don't know or we don't fully understand, I think, I think that's a good distinction. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So, anyways, we're kind of getting off onto a tangent so i guess we'll go ahead and say goodbye but yeah share your stories with us let us know don't forget to like and follow us on social media great lakes confidential is on instagram and facebook we are also a part of joy road media podcasting network which is also on instagram and facebook joy road media we have a lot of really cool shows on there in fact our sister show great lake celebrates is my newest favoritest thing so i hope you guys are listening to that and if you have any suggestions for shows a name suggestion for this fun little segment that we started today please send us an email at great lakes confidential at gmail.com and I guess that's it. We'll head on out. So thank you for sharing your story with me today. Oh, you're welcome, baby. It was interesting. Real dirtbag sort of guy, but uh, but yeah, nice. Mm. Well, I mean, they can't all be <laughs> Little Caesar, right? <laughs> on that note, be safe and watch for deer.